1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be looking at a passage in that chapter, and we want everybody to be able to see it, so these guys have some Bibles. As they make their way back, if you need a Bible, just uh, get their attention, they'll get one to you, and it is marked at 1 John 3. Today we conclude the mini-series we've been in for the last several weeks. The title of that series is on the screen, but also at the top of the insert that you should have received in the program on your way in today. Today we conclude that series, The Gospel for Real Life. Next week we'll begin a series in the book of 1 Peter. Now if you'll take a look at that insert that I mentioned, you'll see that we have five of the six lines there filled in on the chart. And today we're going to look at the last of those six items, and it's called glorification. Now when we think of glorification, I think most of us think of heaven, because we often use glory as a synonym for heaven. We might say something like, God called Joe home to glory, for instance. And that's certainly accurate. Heaven and glory go together. But I'm not sure most of us understand why that's the case. What does glory mean? And how does glory relate to our final destination in heaven? And what I'd like to do is we look at this final portion of the gospel, glorification. I'd like to spend a bit of our time today, a good bit of it, showing the connection between God's glory and heaven and then to attempt to make some practical application of that for us. Now, I'm going to ask you to make a, a conscious effort to stay with me from the very beginning, because as I was preparing this, I thought to myself, you know, this gets a little heavy fairly quick, and it's the morning, and so I could lose some people uh, fairly quickly. It would be tempting for you to perhaps tune out because you're having to think too much, but I'm just encouraging you not to do that. And in fact, let's bow right now and ask God to help us, all right? Our Father, we need your help every moment of every day for every task to which we put our hand. And Lord, we particularly need your help as we gaze into your word and we try to correlate the profound truths that are contained therein. There are so many things that keep us from doing that. There is our sin that we fight against every moment. There is our frailty and our inability to focus our attention. But Lord, help us, we ask to do that in this time together. And may we glean from your word your truth about what you are making us to be and what we will ultimately become and why you are doing that, so that in the here and now we may live lives that indeed glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, glorification is the end of a process that began not with the first thing on that uh, top of that chart that's on the screen or that you have on the insert. The process did not begin when we were called. It did not begin with the next item, when we were regenerated or then when we were justified or adopted. These all happened at a point in time in the past if we've come to God through Jesus. And then it ends, though, with what we are going to see today, glorification. But it started before anything that's on that chart. Now, how do I know that? Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that those he predestined, he called. 
And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What we're going to look at today, and in fact, what we've been looking at these last several weeks, all of it began not when we believed, not even 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, not even in the beginning. It all began before the beginning. You go, before the beginning? <laughs> well, yeah, because before the beginning of time, there was already God, right? And before the beginning, God created a plan for all those things on the chart to take place. He created a plan that involved to whom all of that stuff would happen. Notice that the verse on the screen says, those he predestined, not what he predestined. He predestined people. And so he created a plan that involved to whom all of that stuff would happen, and he created a plan that involved how it would happen. And the Bible tells us that he determined in eternity past, before the beginning, that it would be centered on the life and death of God the Son, who was, according to Scripture, chosen before the creation of the world. In fact, uh, the Bible tells us that he was, what he was chosen for in Revelation chapter 13. He's the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now why? Why did God devise a plan before the creation of the world that involved how he would make provision on the cross of Christ for those who would come to him and how he would bring them safely to their appointed end. Why did God do all that? Well, God did it for the same reason that all artists create their works. All artists, those who create, whether paintings or music or sculpture or theater or whatever it is, all artists create for a reason. Now, it may be for no reason other than the need of money. I play my music on nights and weekends to pay the bills while I go to medical school. Hopefully one day I'll get a real job. Or it may be to make a statement, even if a false statement. The composer John Cage believed that we live in a universe of, of chance, pure chance, and he sought to express his false belief in the very way that he composed his music. I read from one author that Cage began to compose his music through the tossing of coins. It's said that for some of his pieces, lasting only 20 minutes, he had tossed the coin thousands of times. This is pure chance. But apparently, says this author, not pure enough, he wanted still more chance. So he devised a mechanical conductor. It was a machine working on cams, the motion of which cannot be determined ahead of time, and the musicians just followed this. Or, as an alternative, sometimes he employed two conductors who could not see each other, both conducting simultaneously. Anything to produce pure chance. There's a story that once, after the musicians had played Cage's total chance music, as he was bowing to acknowledge the applause, <clears throat> by the way, can you believe there was applause, but nonetheless... As he was bowing to acknowledge the applause, there was a noise behind him. He thought it sounded like steam escaping from somewhere, but then to his dismay, he realized it was the musicians behind him who were hissing because they saw the ugliness of really what he had produced. 
Now, thankfully, many artists seek to express better and nobler beliefs through their work, seeking to convey what the Greek philosophers called the true, the good, and the beautiful. But humans, hear this, can only create because they have been made in the image of a God who himself creates. God is the first and the ultimate artist. And like all artists, he creates for a reason. And his reason is the same as that of most artists. He creates in order to express himself. In order to make something about himself known. And that's why then the chart has glorification in it. Everything before the, that is on the chart and everything before the chart began and all that is in between, they all serve to produce what is on the chart. It's all been done in the interest of God expressing His character. It has all been done and it is all being done in order for God to display what He is like. And so the Bible teaches that he planned in eternity past to express his character quality of love, for instance, between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I told you it gets a little heavy. Just stay with me, all right? But here's what the Bible says in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, now notice, promised before the beginning of time. So God promised before the beginning of time that there would be the faith of God's elect, in whom he would implant the hope, the confident expectation of eternal life. And the question then is, if you're awake, it's before time, there's pretty much only God To whom does he make this promise? Promised before the beginning of time. God's elect, those who were predestined, were promised before the beginning of time. But the question is, but to whom? 2 Timothy chapter 1 helps us answer that question because it uses the exact same phrase, before the beginning of time, where it says, this grace of salvation was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. To whom was this promise? Of a people who would come to God and through whom he would express what he is like, his character, his character qualities made known in his world. To whom was that promise made? It was made by God the Father to none other than God the Son, Christ Jesus. And God demonstrates his love for the Son in this promise of giving a people to him. The Father shows his love to the Son by promising to him people who will come to him and honor him with their lives. And then the Son, God the Son in turn, reciprocates that love to the Father by accepting those whom he gives. Jesus said this when he walked the earth in John chapter 6. All those the Father gives me. And remember, before time, God determined that. All those whom the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So God has devised his plan in eternity to show love between God the Father and God the Son 
And God the Holy Spirit loves and is loved by the Father and the Son and demonstrates it by applying the work of both to the lives of those whom the Father has chosen. Wow. So you guys just you know, walk in and I just go, wow, there it is. But I've been dealing with this for the better part of a week. And it is amazing. And it never ceases to amaze me. The grandeur of God and the plan of our God and the way he has unfolded it, and the way he has told us about it in his word. So why did God design a plan that involved the predestination of some to salvation? Well, the first answer to that question we have on the screen, and that is the gospel is an expression of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Going back to eternity past. But then we get involved in this plan, that extends from predestination in eternity past to glorification in eternity future and everything in between. And so indeed the gospel is an expression of love between Father, Son, and Spirit, but also the gospel expresses love in a way that extends His glory. I'd like to explain what that means. So all of this stuff that we celebrate when we come together each Lord's Day in our salvation through the gospel of Christ. All of that goes back to eternity past when in the eternal counsels of the triune God, this plan was devised. But then it includes us, and it includes us in a way that extends God's glory in his world. Now, how so? Well, the last item on your chart, again, the one we're considering today is glorification. And the reason that's the last item on the chart is because in Romans 8 and verse 30, which we've already seen briefly, it's the last item there as well. Remember, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so the end of this, the end of this plan that God devised in eternity past that will then extend into eternity future, the end of that is that those he has chosen be glorified. Now, the word glory is used a couple of ways in the Bible, one of which, and one of the most important of which, is the display of God's character. And so, in glory, what we will really be doing is displaying fully God's character. Glory is the display of God's character. Now, how do we know this? Well, we see this in a few passages in Scripture that make it clear that that's what glory is, the display of God's character. We see it in the famous verse in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of what? They fall short of the glory of God. And so our sin is in falling short of the character of God, in failing to think and to talk and to act like God. In failing to emulate God's character, we sin. All have sinned and fall short of the character of God. We see it as well in another famous verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 31. And after a several chapters long discussion about whether or not Christians should engage in eating particular kinds of foods uh, if they've been offered in service to an idol, Paul, Paul who wrote it concludes that whole discussion by saying whether you eat or you drink, or whatever you do, do it all in a way that's consistent with the character of God. Do it all to the glory of God. And so, friends, God, like all artists, 
does what he does to express himself, to display his character. And God's artistry in creation displays his character. It displays his power and it displays his beauty. And that's why the psalmist will say in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens show the character of God. And so glory in the Bible refers to the display of God's character. And how do we enter into all of that? Well, we were made in God's image. We were made to be mirrors that reflect God back to God as we think and talk and act like God. We bring glory to God when we reflect God's character in the way we think and in the way we talk and in the way we act. And God told the first man and the first woman that he made in his image to be these mirrors that reflect him back to him. He told the first man and the first woman, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. You all know why? Because God likes to see his image everywhere. God likes to see lots of mirrors reflecting him back to him. And that's why you find passages like Psalm number 72, verse 19. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And so glorification refers to this then, friends. It refers to a state in which one day we will fully and perfectly reflect God's character because at all times and in all situations we will think and we will talk and we will act like God. Now, okay, you're good with that? If you're still awake, you're good with that. I trust we made that clear from Scripture. But then if you are awake and you're thinking, you might ask yourself, as I ask myself, well then, if that's God's objective, why didn't He just make me that way and leave me that way? <laughs> I mean, why the whole restoration process? Why all the mess and all the pain? Why didn't God just make people that reflect Him and they stay that way? You know, indeed, He made the first man and woman. He made Adam and Eve like Him, but He made it possible for them to become broken. To become broken and distorted mirrors, which in fact they became and which in fact we are. Why that? <laughs> well, that too was for the purpose of extending God's glory. You see, I've said that the gospel is an expression of love between Father, Son, and Spirit that we see back in eternity past. And then the gospel expresses love in a way that extends His glory. And He extends His glory by saving and recreating more people to display His character. But now follow this. But also by displaying more aspects of His character. And Him displaying, God displaying more aspects of His character and what He's like could only be done against the backdrop of sin and the misery and the pain that go with it. There are some things about the character of God that we only know through pain. And the Bible actually teaches this. In Romans chapter 9, in a passage that I'll admit to you up front is very difficult, but I'm going to tell you what it says. What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make his power known. His wrath and his power are part of his character. 
and he's choosing to make those aspects of his glory known. What if, although choosing to show his wrath and his power to make those known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance? You see that for glory. You say, wow, what is that saying? Well, this passage is saying that God gives opportunity to show aspects of his character by the very fact that he allows sin into his world. Aspects of his character that would not otherwise be known apart from it. His power over rebellious people. His holy judgment, that is his wrath against sin, are seen only in the context of sin. And it tells us why he allows this. Verse 23 says, he did this. Now, just stop there for a second. He did this. He did what? Well, he did what is in verse 22. He did this. And the this is, he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. In order to, he did it all to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. The ultimate purpose is related to Him, God, showing His love and mercy and grace and faithfulness to those whom the Father has given to Jesus in eternity past. Mercy is not seen apart from misery. And so even allowing sin serves God's glorious purpose. You say, I never thought of that. Especially kind of early in the morning. But this is, this is God's purpose, and this for all time, and this is including your time, including right now, and including your life. And I've said that God allowed sin as opposed to God causing sin. Now, why do I, why do I word it that way? Well, it is because the Bible is clear that God is not the author of sin. James chapter 1 and verse 13. God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt any, any man. James 1.13. And we also see this, though, in the grammar of this otherwise difficult passage in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. You see, the end of verse 23 explicitly identifies who it was that prepared the vessels of mercy. It says, notice, He, God, prepared them beforehand for glory. So Paul, who wrote this, is very clear that the one who prepared these objects of mercy for for glory is God himself. But then in verse 22, you've got these objects of wrath and who or how were they prepared? When verse 22 speaks of vessels of wrath, it just says at the end of verse 22, notice, prepared for destruction. Not he prepared them for destruction. Just that they are prepared for destruction. And that's because verse 23 is written, just stay for a sec, you know, this is originally written in Greek, and verbs in Greek are written with what's called voice, and sometimes they're written with the active voice, and that means that there is an actor performing the action. And so at the end of verse 23, the actor performing the action is God preparing the vessels of mercy for glory. God is the one doing it. But at the end of verse 22, it's in what's called the passive voice. It doesn't identify who did the preparing. And the implication is that those who are punished 
are so because they have prepared themselves for that very end. The Bible says that God does not create and prepare people for hell. But people prepare themselves for hell. In fact, Jesus said at the end, in the final judgment, in Matthew chapter 25, He will say to them, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, but notice, prepared for the devil and his angels. God has prepared a place for the devil and his angels to which people will choose to go because they reject the mercy that is found by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so glory is the display of God's character. And glorification is the time in which we will perfectly display His character, and that only happens when we get to heaven. Now, why have I had you turn to 1 John chapter 3? Well, notice 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so in this one blessed verse, you have both a statement about what we are now. Thanks be to God, as we saw a few weeks ago, we are adopted into His family, and we are now, in the present, children of God. And we know this as well. It goes on to say, we don't, we, we, it's not been made known what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him and we shall see Him as, as He is. There's a present reality, and then there is this future promise that we shall be like Him. When it says, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, you might get the idea in the way that's worded that, we will be like Him because as soon as we see Him, because we see Him, we'll just be transformed. But I don't believe that's actually what it's saying. I agree with S. Lewis Johnson and others. Johnson says, what this means is that there is a transformation in me accomplished by God which enables me to see what I could not have seen were it not for the transformation. In other words, for me to see God, I have to be changed. <laughs> In other words, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, means that there will be such a transformation in us that we will be able to see Him. We will be prepared to see Him. We will be ready to see Him. That transformation is necessary, friends, because the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 12, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So there must come a time in which we are completely holy, when we've been completely changed, and that's what this final stage of God's plan for us is, this glorification. Now this has effects in the here and now. What's all that mean to you, mean to me now? The next verse in 1 John 3, verse 3, says, All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. And so those of us who have this confident expectation that this is going to happen to us, just like we discussed last week in sanctification, God continually setting us apart, we are continually made more and more like Jesus, more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And in fact, 
Being like Christ in our character is the goal of God saving us and sanctifying us. Again, Romans chapter 8 says, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. The process of adopting the character of Christ is already happening in the lives of those that have come to Jesus. It is a transformation that is already happening and will be made complete in glorification. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. That's why the Westminster Catechism, its very first question, remember last week a catechism is a question and answer way of of teaching, the very first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What's the purpose for man? And the famous answer is this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's a very good and profound answer. But as you read that, you could come away thinking that these are two different things. That the chief end of man is to glorify God, display his character, and in addition to that, enjoy him forever. As if they're separate things. But notice how John Piper, I think, has helpfully modified that. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You see, it's not just that, okay, I've got to be like Jesus in order to get to heaven, so I'll be like Jesus as much as I can, then he'll transform me, and then I'll be equipped to see him, and then I'll get in, and... No more pain, no more misery, and that'll all be good, and that's what I'm looking forward to. Golden streets, laying on a cloud, playing a harp, all the stuff. No, it's, it's, it's not that. It is that we, we glorify God, and part of our glorifying God is when we enjoy Him forever. Because, remember, His glory is the display of His character, and when He displays His character, and we behold His character, and we learn of His character, we see how very valuable and how precious it is. And we respond to it by enjoying emulating his character. Not just because we have to, but because we want to. When we finally make it to our reward, the surroundings will be quite a bit different. You know, sometimes we say, I went into something, I just felt like I died and went to heaven. And we, and we think of it, we're talking about the surroundings. And most often, unfortunately for us, that's what we think of when we think of heaven. We think of the, the surroundings, how cool it'll be. <laughs> and all the stuff I'll be just able to do, you know, just think of my favorite activities, playing golf, whatever it is. Yes, indeed, the surroundings will change, but hear this, more important is that we, we all will change. And so the removal from the presence of sin is due in largest part to the fact that there will be no more sinners, <laughs> Not so much that the environment and all the stuff around us will be renewed and brand new and it doesn't rust and it doesn't destroy. All that is true. But those are all, hear this now, those are all consequences of sin. And the most profound change will be the elimination of the sin that causes those consequences. There will be no more sinners. It's like the difference between being in a house for which we may or may not be fitted versus being in a home where we are at one with our surroundings. You know the difference? You know, some of you have probably had occasion to do what I've done from time to time. 
I've wandered into a place where I just go, you know, I don't belong here. This place is too hoity-toity for me. So I've gone into a restaurant where I didn't feel like I was dressed for it, where I was in the right economic class. You're in some palatial thing and you go, what am I doing here? But we will, when we are in heaven, we will be perfectly suited to the environment in which we find ourselves. It will be our home. In glory, we are fitted for the new life that we will live, both physically and spiritually. We will be given glorified, isn't this what we call it? Glorified bodies. These are bodies perfectly fitted for the environment in which we will live. We will be transformed spiritually. And yes, it will be absolutely stunning in its beauty, but beauty is restored because we are restored. Just as beauty was broken when our relationship with God was broken. And in earth now and in heaven then, the environment reflects the reality. And just step back and think about that. The environment reflects the reality. The environment that we live in now reflects the reality that there is sin pervasive in our world. The environment we will inhabit then will reflect the reality of no more sin, thanks be to God. And so we have bombings. And so we have diagnoses. And so we have molestations. And so we have an on and on the list goes. The environment reflects the reality. One of my favorite hymns, a rather new hymn, My Jesus Fair, written by my friend Chris Anderson, whom you, some of you have met because he preached at our church a, a few years ago. But he speaks in, in that hymn of the thorns that crown Jesus, thorns made by the fall. You see, the reason there are thorns, the reason the environment is the way it is, the reason our surroundings are the way they are is because they reflect the reality of the fact that there is sin pervasive. But in heaven, sinners will be transformed and then the surroundings will reflect that new and blessed reality. For now, we live in the Bible's misery index. Anybody heard that term before, misery index? I think it goes back to Ronald Reagan. So, showing my age... But uh, back in 1980, when he was running against Jimmy Carter, he uh, coined something called the misery index, which was the unemployment rate plus the inflation rate. The misery index. But the biblical misery index is the combination of sin and suffering. Both our sin and our suffering. Hear this, friends, and this is how this applies to you now. Almost done. Stay with me. But because of this grand plan of God to bring us home to glory, to reflect his character. The biblical misery index of sin and suffering will be overruled by God's glorious purpose. That means the sin and the suffering that you commit or that you are undergoing, both of them, in the grace that is in Jesus, will be overruled by God's glorious purpose to make us like Jesus. When bad things happen to us, don't we first ask very often, where is God? But because of this blessed truth, if you understand it and you apply and appropriate that, when this week bad things happen to you, you understand it's because I live in an environment where sin reigns. 
But God ultimately reigns and will overrule the sin and the suffering because of His glorious purpose. Do you all remember that I said God is the ultimate artist? And remember this, His people, whom He has chosen, are His ultimate masterpiece. Here's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2. We are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, notice, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And when the NIV says we are God's handiwork, it's translating a Greek word. Many of you know poema. We get our English word poem from it. And so many translations say we are God's masterpiece. We are God's work of art. We are God's craftsmanship. They all have the same idea that God has made us and chosen us and designed us to be his work of art in expressing him, expressing him back to him. And so God's glorious purpose will overrule our sin and our suffering. Remember that. And lastly, remember this. Glorification means our misery is temporary. The misery index is sin and suffering. But sin and suffering will be done away. And because of that, the environment will reflect that reality. Christ has redeemed both the cause and the effects that are our present misery. The cause is sin. The effect is misery because we are separated from God. And he paid for the sin and he endured the pain on our behalf. And have you ever considered this? That when we're in heaven, Jesus Jesus will be in bodily form, the Bible tells us. His resurrected, glorified body will be there. Our glorified bodies, new bodies fitted for our new environment, will be there with him. And yet, when Jesus was resurrected in his glorified body and he showed himself to his first followers in those post-resurrection appearances, do you remember that he was able to show them the wounds in his hand? Why keep the wounds around? we will be forever reminded that we are in this glorious state because he is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And the reason we are in this inglorious state now is because we have sinned, because we do not reflect God's character back to him, because as a result we are separated from God and our environment reflects that reality. And so I'm going to, before we conclude in just a bit, invite anyone who has never come to Jesus Christ to do so. And on your chart, you can now fill it in. And those of you that are just kind of anal about that stuff, you, the whole time, it's just like, tell me what the blank is, okay? Just, I hope he doesn't forget. But God's grace delivers us from a number of things. God's grace has these six aspects to it in the gospel. And, and then gives us a particular consequence. And in glorification, God's grace delivers us from the presence of sin and gives us a new home. Not a new house, a new home. It's your take-home truth at the bottom. Those who believe in Jesus are given the character necessary to live with God. And he's instilled that character in us now, and he is doing so day by day, conforming us to the image of Christ, and one day we'll be completely like him 
in order to see him. Now, those who have never come to God through Jesus Christ, we offer you that opportunity. Friends, do not prepare yourself for destruction. But you can begin to be fitted for heaven. Now, right now. What do I do? Realize that you are a sinner. And you feel the effects in your life of that sin, of that separation from God. You live in an environment that shows the reality of that sin, that brokenness. Recognize that Jesus has done what is necessary to pay for your sin. He died the death that you deserve. He lived the life that you should have lived and I should have lived. And so repent. It means I'm going to follow you, God, with my life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. Well, how do I do all of that? It's nothing fancy. You simply pray to God from your heart, receive Jesus into your life. We have a sample prayer for you there, but it's not magic. It's just a sample prayer. But when we bow in just a moment, you acknowledge to God, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need the transformation that only you can begin in me. I give my life to you. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for this time to look into the pages of your word about these heady subjects. Oh, Lord, they are too wonderful for me. They're beyond my ability and our ability. But you have spoken in plain language in your word so that we can know about you, we can know about your purposes, know about ourselves and what our problems are and what you have done to redeem the world that you have made and the people in it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, who received the love of God the Father, who gave him a people for his very own, but he came to secure those people by his death on the cross. We thank you that those that the Father has given will never be driven away. We thank you, Lord, that in time your Spirit, God the Spirit, works to apply what you have determined to do in eternity past. At a point in time when I was 19, your Spirit touched my heart as I read your Word, and I was changed, and I am being changed, and I will be changed. And there are brothers and sisters who are sitting here who have their own testimony about how at a point in time, you began the transformation process that you determined to do long ago. Lord, I pray for any who came into this room not knowing what that's about, that perhaps they right now from their heart to you are crying out saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I feel the consequences of my sin. I know this brokenness, the distortion that is my life, and I want to be restored. We pray that you will do that work in and through them that you have done in and through and for us. Lord, you are glorious. You are beautiful. You are majestic. Help us, Lord, to see this as the marvelous privilege that it is to live for your glory, to emulate your character. Help us indeed to glorify you by enjoying you forever. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.